Between 2005 and 2009, the bodies of eight women are found in Jefferson Davis Parish, Louisiana, the town of Jennings. Most all of the victims knew each other and traveled in the same circles. Tales of drugs, prostitution, police corruption, and the seedy underworld of Jennings plagued the investigation. These murders remain unsolved to this day. You're listening to the Mysterious Brews podcast, and tonight we bring you the case of the Jeff Davis Eight. Somewhere in the bowels of Georgia. Well, for our 150th episode, we wanted to travel back in time to episode number two. Those longtime listeners will remember that this was the episode that the audio was hideous, and we even sent it off to a lot of people to see if they could clean it up. That was when we were very young entrepreneurs in the podcast world. And now that we have 149 episodes under our belt, we decided that we are going to go back and cut this puppy up into two pieces. Coach is enjoying the sun and the sand. So you get Arlo and his sexy, soft, smooth voice tonight for part one. And we're going to open up this two-parter with going over the victimology. And then part two, Coach will be back and we'll get into the theories, and some of the other things that were happening in Jefferson Davis Parish. So I wanted to start the episode with the timeline, and then we will get into victimology. But basically, on May twentieth, two 2005, the body of Loretta Chasen Lewis, 28, is found nude floating in Grand Mariah Canal by local fishermen roughly five miles outside of Jennings. Medical examiner states that there were significant amounts of cocaine and alcohol in her system, but the cause of death is undetermined. June 18th of 2005, the body of Ernestine Patterson, age 30, is found in a drainage canal five miles south of where Loretta's body was found. Patterson is reported to have also had drugs in her body, but her throat had been slashed and the wounds on her wrist suggest a struggle or bindings. Her death is ruled a homicide. March 18, 2007, the body of Kristen Gary Lopez, age 21, is found in a small body of water. Lopez was nude except for one sock on her left foot. Her body was so badly decomposed that a toxicology report was not able to be performed and the cause of death is undetermined. 
She was a witness in a police shooting in 2005 of an unarmed drug user slash informant. May 12, 2007, the body of Whitney Dubois, 26, is found on a road five miles outside of Jennings. She was found nude with significant drugs in her system. This is the first body found on land. Cause of death is undetermined. Whitney's boyfriend witnessed the same 2005 shooting as Lopez. May 29, 2008, the body of Laconia Muggy Brown, 23, is found along the side of a separate road from Whitney Dubois' body. Authorities quickly classified this as a homicide due to Muggy's throat being slit and seven cuts about her neck and three behind her right ear. Rumor is Muggy witnessed the murder of Ernestine Patterson. September the 11th, 2008, the body of Crystal Shea Benoit Zeno, or Zeno, 24, is found in a wooded area. Hunters report a foul smell and authorities find Crystal's skeletal remains. No cause of death was determined due to the state of her body. November the 15th, 2008, the body of Brittany Gary, age 17, is found off a highway in Jennings. No cause of death, and she is the first cousin to Kristen Gary Lopez. August 19th, 2009, the body of Nicole Guillory, 26, is found just hours after she is reported missing by highway workers near an overpass on I-10. No cause of death, and Nicole tells her mother that, quote, it was the police who were killing the girls, end quote. Now, for our research, we basically went through the Internet and have been keeping up with the case more since we first dropped this one, and some of our new listeners may be trying to go back and look to find where episode two that we originally did is out there. Like I said in the opening, the audio is so bad that we actually removed it from our episode list. So the biggest thing is we still have a lot of people out of Louisiana that contact us Uh, here recently. We've had a young lady, and I'll keep her name private unless she says otherwise, but she had seen our social media posts on the Jennings 8 and our little snippet of basically when we dropped the episode and she had reached out and made me aware of some other I guess information that's out there now um but we I have started looking back through that and this is a huge rabbit hole that will suck you in if you let it and the main area that we used for research was a book and it was named Murdering the Bayou by Ethan Brown, who killed the women known as the Jeff Davis Eight. And it is a great book. You can get it on audio file. Uh, I believe it's still available on YouTube and you can listen to the whole thing. He does a great job. There was an Oxygen Network or Discovery Plus documentary on the Jeff Davis Eight and Ethan's in it and kind of tells this, his story from the book's perspective perspective and he gives you some visuals of actually how all of this went down 
You can also look up the matter on medium.com and they have a huge article there. Uprocks also has an article. Sword and Scale did a podcast on this same topic and it was episode 24. So those are our four main research materials. Getting back to the story, Jennings is separated by railroad tracks. The north end of town is very affluent, while the south side is basically the wrong side of the tracks. The north side has been home to the professional class in Jennings, such as lawyers, judges, district attorneys, and businessmen. The south side, conversely, is where the working class, oil field workers, mechanics, house painters reside. The class division has yielded a racially mixed south side, which is plagued with drugs, prostitution, rundown housing, and a dark underworld of pimps and drug dealers. The drugs are easily procured with the town only two hours and 45 minutes from Houston. This is where one could connect with major players in the cocaine and marijuana scenes. During this time period, it is also where residents would go, quote, doctor shopping for pain meds. If you don't know what that is, look that one up. It's plagued Appalachia and basically poor towns across the southeast for years. With drugs readily available, it was only a matter of time before corruption would set in in the Jennings law enforcement scene. 300 pounds of marijuana go missing from the sheriff's evidence room. Now, Mike Dubois, Whitney's brother, sold drugs for a narcotics officer that was seized in bus on I-10. Now, this would last from approximately 1988 to 1992. Shortly after the new sheriff, Ricky Edwards, took over in 92, he dismantled the drug interdiction program and told the drug dog's handler that he could either buy the drug dog for $10,000 or they were going to have the dog put down, which is crazy. It was also at this time that constitutional prerequisite for any search was disregarded entirely. This would land the new sheriff in a plethora of high-profile civil rights lawsuits. It was such a big deal that Dateline NBC did an undercover piece showing how cars with out-of-state tags were targeted for suspected drug trafficking and seizing all cash in the vehicle. Under a Louisiana state drug forfeiture law, Citizens who had assets seized were not charged for the unfortunate burden of proving their innocence and paying a fine of either $2,500 or 10% of the value of the property, whichever was higher. Now, these funds were then distributed as follows. 60% went to the law enforcement agency that seized the property. 20% would go to the DA and 20% would go to a state judge's due Judicial Expense Fund. This bred corruption. Now, that's kind of the backstory leading into the first murder in May of 2005. And we're going to go through that timeline, victim by victim, with the victimology. Unfortunately, May 20th, 2005, like I stated, Loretta Chason Lewis, 28, was found nude floating in the Grand Canal Canal by a local fisherman five miles or a little more outside of Jennings. Now, Loretta was friends. I'm sorry. Loretta's friends stated she was fighting a losing battle with a crack addiction, and crack was the drug of choice in Jennings. She had previously been married to Murphy Lewis, to whom she had two boys with. He had stated that she would recreationally use on weekend trips with her friends, but that turned into an everyday habit. She would disappear for days on the south side of Jennings chasing the drug. Days turned into weeks, 
that he would not see her and she would be on a bender only to come up asking for some money to buy something to eat. Now, Lewis did persuade her to enter an outpatient facility rehab in 2004, but she failed to complete the program. This was when Lewis filed for divorce. Loretta is picked up for writing bad checks she stole from a truck on one of her benders, and she tried to insist that the owner of the checks would pay her for sex with the checks. She would spend three weeks plus 60 days in jail after a commuted sentence. Upon her release, she was back as at, at it as if nothing had happened. After her body is found, her roommate and former cellmate at the prison stated that Deputy Terry Guillory would sneak in Loretta's cell and have sex with her. This is something that Loretta would often brag about, but why is this brought up? Because the day Loretta's body is found, Guillory had approached her roommate, Deschotel, asking, quote, where was Loretta? Quote, when was the last time I seen Loretta? When pressed by Deschotel about why he was asking, he stated, quote, we think she is missing, end quote. So on the morning of May 17th, 2005, the day she was murdered, Loretta was seen climbing into a vehicle at the Phillips 66 gas station with South Jennings pimp and drug dealer Frankie Richard. Now keep that name handy because he's going to come up a lot. And this is one of those episodes, and this is one of those cases where you may need something to write with and some paper to keep up with the main players. You talk about red string on a map, going from picture to picture, this one has it. So later that day, Loretta is snorting cocaine at the Boudreaux Inn, which is now closed, but at the time it had a bar on Highway 26, which was Louisiana Highway 26, in Jennings just off of Exit 64 on I-10. She was there with Richard and a street thug named Jermaine Stymie Washington and two Jeff Davis eight victims later in the timeline, Muggy Brown and Nicole Guillory. Now, some private investigators believe that Stymie suffocated Loretta at the end as Muggy and Nicole watched helplessly. But again, that's allegedly. The next victim is Ernestine Patterson, and she was found partially clothed in a drainage canal on June 18th, 2005, by three men who were frog gigging. She had been missing since June 16th and had been a devout churchgoer with a husband and four children. Her downward spiral began when her and her husband divorced. She moved in with a violent drug addict boyfriend that turned her on to the crack and the sex scene of South Jennings. She was known by the Johns as someone that would do anything for crack. She too was harassed by some of Jennings' police department. Her sister stated that around midnight one night, an unmarked car pulled up calling her and Ernestine crackhead whores. Her sister and Ernestine ignored it, but she argued back. The cop told them the next time they see them out on the streets, they would kill both of them. Her sister reported this to the sheriff's office, and they just laughed and hung up on her, which is crazy. But... Ernestine was last seen on June 16, 2005, around Jay's Lounge, where she turned a trick and then met up with Brian, I'm sorry, Byron, Chad Jones, and Lawrence Nixon in an abandoned house next to his 
four sex with Byron Jones. This is where it gets a little murky. Now, according to Nixon's wife, Keggy, she was frying chicken and fries when Byron burst through the door carrying a massive, bulging, blood-soaked garbage bag. Nixon confesses that he held Ernestine down and Byron slit her throat. They put the bag on the back porch until a white vehicle pulled up, and then Byron and Nixon loaded the bag in the vehicle and it drove off. Now, this is all according to Nixon's wife, Cagey. And she was instructed to hose off the back porch when they left. Now, Nixon and Byron both deny this story, but Cagey's story is partially corroborated by her daughter, who told her that Nixon came in covered in blood. Nixon's account is that Byron came in covered in blood and said, quote, I did something wrong and then left. Byron does have a partial alibi due to being in the American Legion Hospital at 3.04 a.m. due to smoking formaldehyde and crack. Yes, I said formaldehyde and crack. Nixon is cousins with Muggy Brown, and it is theorized that Muggy was at the abandoned house when Ernestine was murdered by Nixon and Byron, making her witness to now two murders. Having witnessed this, Muggy, Byron, and Nixon are all arrested for second-degree murder on June 23, 2006. Now, this investigation was doomed by shitty police work, incompetence, and bad decision-making, and the charges were dropped due to an insignificant evidence on the prosecution's part. And we'll get into how bad the shitty police work is, but y'all know, listening to our podcast, we call a spade a spade. The next victim in our timeline is Kristen Gary Lopez. She was last seen on March 5th, 2007 on Frank Street, where she was to meet a client and score some drugs. When no one had seen her, Tracy Chason contacts Kristen's mother and tells her she was worried about Kristen and she had not seen her since March 5th. Now, her mom, this conversation takes place on March 15th. So her mom, on March 15th of 2007, files a missing persons report. Just before noon on March 18th, 2007, is when Kristen is found nude in Pettijohn Canal by a fisherman. Kristen was deep in the drug scene and sex work scene in Jennings. However, she was on the SSI, which is Supplemental Security Income, due to having a low IQ. Now, she had an awful childhood and no familial support and basically was surviving on the streets. Her parents both struggled with drugs, and Kristen would drop out of school in the eighth grade. She was a transient on the south side of Jennings Underworld, and she was on the streets. She'd go from one place to another. She'd sleep on porches, in barns, behind houses, in rundown houses, abandoned houses, wherever she could find shelter. Now, just before Mardi Gras in 2007, Kristen and Tracy Chason were beaten by Jennings' drug dealer over money. And so they stuck closely to Frankie. Remember Frankie? And only left the budget in to pick up clean clothes. They kept close to Frankie because he was feared by everyone in Jennings. And Frankie believed they were stealing from him and kicked both of the girls out. They see Frankie the night of March 5th and beg for his safety. He tells them they disrespected him 
and they were not going to stay with him again. Now, investigators believe, and then again, this is allegedly, that Kristen was murdered in a house on Frank Street due to finding her clothes there. Now, Whitney Dubois was the next victim, and she was turned on to crack by her boyfriend at the time, Alvin Bootsy Lewis. Bootsy has ties to Loretta through her being married to his brother at one time. Now, Bootsy was in and out of jail, and this left Whitney alone on the streets. After Bootsy gets out of jail, they get into a nasty fight at the end, and he stabs Whitney in the back of the head with a damn screwdriver. The wound was two inches long and a quarter inch deep. Y'all, I cannot fathom, and it was hard researching this, that this is just everyday life on the south side of Jennings. This shit goes on, and there's probably countless other stories that we don't even know about with people on that south side that are just trying to survive. Now, Whitney's father would pass shortly after her being stabbed in the head, and this sent her into the gutter. Her family began looking down on her due to her crack addiction and run-ins with the law. Now, Whitney is caught by her grandmother stealing her prescription pain pills. She leaves and gets into an argument with Frankie in his yard. Frankie would be the last person to see her in the early hours of May 11th. Around 7.30 a.m. on May 12th, her body is discovered at an intersection of Bobby and Earl Duhon Road outside of Jennings by Jamie Trahan. Or Trahan. Jamie has been described as a friend of Frankie's, which is a conflict of interest if you think about it. Now, Jamie states he saw her body a half a mile away on Highway 102 and knew it was her a half a mile away. This boy's got some damn good eyes is all I can say. It seems more plausible that he knew exactly where to look for her body. Problem is, you could not have seen her body from where he is stating he saw it half a mile away on Highway 102. Whitney was completely nude except for a brown elastic band and a white elastic band on her right wrist. Toxicology reports state she had high amounts of Xanax and cocaine in her system. And on the night of May 11th, Witness A, which just happens to be old Jamie Trahan, and an unidentified woman partied at the Budget Inn, just down the road from the Boudreaux Inn. Later in the evening, Trahan left the Budget Inn and did not say where he was going. A couple hours later, around 5.15 in the morning, he returns. Witness A and Trahan drove from the Budget Inn outside of Jennings, and Witness A states, quote, We turn a corner and Whitney was in the middle of the road. End quote. Trahan attempts to convince Witness A that what they had just seen was not a dead body, but a dead deer. Witness A tells Trahan, quote, that wasn't no deer, that was a body, end quote. She also, or I'm saying she, which, I mean, it's kind of understood Witness A is a female, but she also tells Trahan to pull over, but he just ignores and just keeps driving. Now, Trahan returned to the budget inn where he and his girlfriend took a shower. 
Now, according to witness A, Trehan then drove back alone to where Whitney had been dumped and calls the police. Trehan then meets up with Frankie Richard, Brandon, Disco Wise, and Trehan tells the pair, quote, man, I found a body. And then he turns to Disco and says, I wish there was something I could do. I found Whitney's body on that gravel road. Frankie puts Trahan in the car and drove him to Whitney's dad's, Mike Dubois' house. Frankie is on record as saying, quote, I thought maybe he could give him some answers and some closure. But instead of answers, the visit in which Trahan shocked the grieving Dubois family by offering to put up $2,500 for Whitney's funeral. I mean, what the fuck is going on? You find this girl, you then go drop this bombshell discovery on her family, and then turn around and say that you're going to hand them $2,500 for a funeral. Who the hell does that? Now, witness A states that while Frankie and him or her were in a drug rehab facility in Logansport, Louisiana, Frankie stated that he and Trahan had killed Whitney and two other girls, but didn't reveal the other two girls' names. Frankie tells Witness A that he put Whitney in a 55-gallon drub of, quote, chemicals, and Frankie is on record stating that he would buy 55-gallon drums of formaldehyde and use it to create wets. If you don't know what a wet is, which I didn't until looking into this, it is marijuana cigarettes dipped in formaldehyde. You may be asking yourself, Did the police follow up on any of this information? Nope. So it's all hearsay and allegedly. Laconia Muggy Brown. On May 27th, 2008, she was seen getting into a red pickup truck with Tracy Chason and Ricardo Tiger Williams. She had purchased a bus ticket for D.C. to stay with her brother. She felt unsafe because her boyfriend, Stymie, remember Stymie, was looking for her, suspecting she had stole $3,000 from him. Yeah, if somebody's thinking that I stole three grand from him, I'm pretty sure they're looking for me. After this sighting of her purchasing this bus ticket, she is never seen alive again. Now, the theory is Muggy had gotten into an argument with Tiger, and he had slashed her throat. He then calls Big Mac, another player, and together they dispose of Muggy's body on East Racka Road near a closed police firing range. Now, this range is located on the border of the Jennings city limits. No one, including Stymie, has ever been charged in Muggy's murder, but she had told numerous friends and relatives, quote, if anybody kills me, it'll be Stymie, end quote. Now, Big Mac's role in her death was corroborated by a task force witness, And this witness is referred to as Witness B. Witness B states that she was riding in a car with Tyson Mouton, a street thug and friend of Frankie Richard's, a few days after the murder and smelled something rotten. And she said the smell was atrocious. She was found, Muggy was, with multiple stab wounds and three cuts behind her right ear, approximately seven cuts across the front of her neck. 
Now, her body was discovered by a Jennings police lieutenant for whom she worked for as an informant, Michael Janice. Now, Sheriff Ricky Edwards would tell Muggy's family that Janice would be investigating Muggy's murder, which is a little conflict of interest. But hell, in Jennings, we don't know what that is. Sheriff Ricky would also tell the family that they would not be allowed to view her body. Now, this little nugget is the same thing that he would tell all of the other families as well. None of the family members were allowed to make a positive ID of their loved ones, and the pallbearers would state that Muggy's casket seemed to weigh 300-plus pounds. And I think Muggy's on record weighing about a buck twenty-five. I'll let you make your own theories there. Next, we get to Crystal Benoit Zeno, and Crystal stood five foot eleven, weighed one hundred seventy pounds. She was an, an imposing figure, but had the personality of a child. She was diagnosed with bipolar disorder at the age of twelve and ran away from home when she was fifteen. Like all of the other murder victims, she had a toxic crack addiction. At the beginning of August two thousand eight, she was living with Frankie Richard, but mysteriously, by the end of the month, she just up and vanishes. Her mother states that she constantly would tell her, quote, what if I am next, end quote. Followed by, what if I am the next one to be murdered? According to witness testimony and other investigation notes, the prevailing theory is as follows. On August 23rd of 2008, Crystal was seen at Brittany Gary's 17th birthday at South Andrew Street. Quote, you don't know who you can trust, Crystal told Britt. They, Crystal would continued, makes a reference to the Jeff Davis eight killers. Quote, they can be your friend. She then tells Brittany she knew who had killed Muggy. After the party, Crystal was seen at Billy Connor's trailer and stayed with a, quote, client on Jefferson Street. On August 29th, Crystal met a man at the Budget Inn. Around 5 p.m., she is spotted at the Phillips 66, which is three miles from the Budget Inn, using a payphone. Yeah, they still existed back then. When asked who she was calling, she stated Deputy Gilroy. She is then seen getting into a white car with Eugene Dog Ivory, Tyson Mouton, and Ricardo Tiger Williams, which all of those have been tied to some of the other murders. The theory is that they would drive Crystal to a wooded area off Lacour Road where they strangled her and left her in the woods. Fast forward to around 3 p.m. on September the 11th, 2008, two weeks after she disappeared, a group of hunters discover Crystal's naked body on a levee near a dry irrigation canal in the densely wooded area off Lacour Road. Crystal's mother is on record as stating that Terry Guillory came to her house and told her that they had found her body and bizarrely just states out of the blue, quote, I didn't kill her, but I know it's her, end quote. When she asked how he was able to identify her badly decomposed body, he tells her, quote, there's a tattoo on an intimate area of her body. Her mom, shocked, shoots back at him and says, you would only know that if you ever had sex with her. 
Guillory doesn't say another word, turns around and walks out of the house and leaves. It would take two additional months for an official ID to come in for Crystal Benoit Zeno. Now remember, Guillory had made another bizarre statement when Deschotel's body was found. Next, we have Brittany Gary, who was just 17 years old and became heavily addicted to crack after Crystal's murder. Following Crystal's murder, she became a recluse, only leaving her house to run errands. She told her sister that she was extremely scared of the police. Now, the sister said that the paranoia was frightening to her. On November 2, 2008, at 6.18 p.m., she is spotted on surveillance footage at the Family Dollar Store buying minutes for her cell phone. The footage shows her leaving the store at 6.22 p.m. This would be the last time Brittany is seen. Her mom reports her missing the next day. Sheriff Ricky Edwards would tell Brittany's uncle that all of the information he had stated that she was missing and he couldn't spare the men to look for. A 17-year-old girl in your town goes missing, and you can't spend or spare the men to go look for a missing 17-year-old girl. That ought to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. On November 15, 2008, around 1 p.m., she is found approximately 10 feet off Keystone Road in tall grass. She was nude except for her rings on her fingers. She was so badly decomposed that almost all of her long, curly hair is gone. Toxicology report stated that she had cocaine and benzolycogen in her system. That benzo word is found in a person's system after the body tries to metabolize cocaine. Now, the cause of death is undetermined, but it's suspected she died of asphyxia. Despite Brittany being cousins with Kristen, she came up on the streets under the wing of Muggy Brown. She was hustling with Frankie Richard and turned tricks at South Andrew Street with Crystal Benoit Zeno. Her mother was also deeply enmeshed in the Richard clan. Her mother, Teresa, took care of Frankie's brother, Billy, when he was recovering from colon cancer. Despite all of these ties, Sheriff Ricky Edwards goes on record stating that he has no information linking Brittany to the other dead women. Really, Ricky? Now, her mother, Teresa, distributed more than 700 missing person flyers with her daughter's photograph in November of 2008. And this brings the attention of then-Governor Bobby Jindal. The governor dispatches state police to help a task force that has been formed, but this help is to no avail. It is rumored that Teresa was actually pimping Brittany out with the help of Frankie Richard. The common theory is that after Brittany left the family dollar, Sheriff's Deputy Danny Barry picked her up and brought her back to his trailer in Lake Arthur for sex. Several witnesses have come forward stating that Barry patronized South Jennings sex workers nearly daily. Quote, Deputy Danny Barry would ride around on the south side with his wife, one witness would tell the task force investigators, and they would try to pick up girls. Barry's vehicle was a small blue sports car. Barry would drop off his wife and she would get the girls. 
the couple would spike a drink and then take the girls back to Barry's house. One witness even told investigators, quote, Danny Barry had a room in his trailer that had chains hanging from the ceiling and that, quote, uh, a person could not see in or out of that room. Some toy box killer shit going on right there. Another sex worker claimed Barry had a trailer with plastic wrap all over the ceiling floors and walls. In task force documents, at least nine witnesses named Barry as a suspect in the killings. Brittany was well aware of Barry and his appetite for rough six. When Brittany had confided in her sister months earlier that she was petrified of Jennings law enforcement, her friends and family believed that she was referring to Deputy Barry. Now, according to a witness, Brittany partied with Barry They smoked crack, drank liquor together nearly around the clock in his trailer for about two days on a bender. On November 4th, allegedly, Barry strangles her, and it's unclear what prompted the attack, but if you're on a two-day bender of cocaine and liquor, the least little thing could have done it. It is then theorized that he dumps her body off Keystone Road. This coincides with the corn coroner stating Brittany's date of death as November 4th. At least three witnesses told task force investigators that they observed suspicious activity on Keystone Road in the days before Brittany's body was found. Two of those witnesses said that on November 9th, they observed a truck parked on the east side of the road where Brittany was found with two white male occupants. One of the men was standing on the roadside. The witnesses said that the men had the confident air of authority about them and could have been police. Now, Deputy Barry may not have acted alone in the Brittany Gary slaying. I'm getting a little parched. See, I'll get you another drink and settle back in. So an associate of Frankie Richard is referred to as, you would guess it, Witness C. And Witness C would tell the task force investigators that Barry worked with Frankie to carry out Brittany's murder. Witness C said that Barry and Frankie smoked crack together and that Barry, quote, needed to cover up something. Also, according to Witness C, Frankie confessed to him that, quote, Brittany knew too much, end quote. In multiple interviews with Ethan Brown, the author of Murder in the Bayou, spanning from 2011 to 2014, Frankie denied any involvement in any of the Jeff Davis 8 murders. And you can actually see some of these interviews on YouTube. And it's we it's weird. Those interviews are so weird. Frankie is a an odd man. He's a big man, but he's an odd fella. But in July of twenty eleven, while talking to author Brown, Frankie fingered Barry as the prime suspect in the sex worker slayings, stating, quote, All these girls, or most of these girls, was found within a three-mile radius of Danny Barry's house. Since he'd been dead, which, shocker, Barry died of cancer in August 2010, nobody else died. Now, this is Frankie Richard talking now. Quote, all these motherfuckers on the sheriff's department are some crooked sons of bitches. Danny Barry was married to a black girl, and she smoked crack. Danny would go to work. And his old lady would smoke crack and trick to make some money to smoke a crack. When Danny get off work, he'd go hunting. And hunting was hunting for girls. And say to these girls, look, 
I'll give you $20 if you tell me where my old lady's at. They would take the money and send him on a wild goose chase. When he would find his old lady, he would get one of those girls to trick with him, and he would watch his wife and the girl. It's not the same person killing those girls, but I think it's the same person behind all of it, Richard would continue. Somebody with authority that had much or something on somebody who insisted of locking somebody up got them to take care of somebody. Now, most of Frankie's remarks about Barry are clearly made out of self-interest. Frankie would obviously like nothing more than a dead man to be responsible for the murders that he has been long suspected of committing. But Frankie's specifics about Barry's drug use and his patronizing of South Jennings sex workers are corroborated by numerous task force witness interviews. Witness C is a confidant of Frankie's, a close business associate and friend. Witness C told task force investigators that he tried on multiple occasions to, quote, stop Richard from confessing, but that he persisted. Quote, Frankie, I don't want to know this shit. Do you do your confessing to God? I don't want to know this shit. End quote. Witness C said that Frankie insisted on talking to him about the Jeff Davis eight murders and admitted to killing four of them and that, quote, he would have done hired hard time for four of them, end quote. Witness C was apparently referring to the victims, Brittany, Crystal, Whitney, and Kristen. Critically, Witness C corroborated details of Whitney Dubois' murder, specifically that Richard had a 55-gallon drum behind his house, as well as formaldehyde that he used to store and perhaps preserve Whitney's body. Quote, I didn't know he was rocking like this, Witness C told task force investigators. It's some wicked shit. Frankie is a monster. He got this place he go black in, man, end quote. So the last victim on our timeline is Nicole Guillory. And she was picked up towards the end of November of 2008 by a task force investigator claiming that she felt like she would be the next victim. Nicole is a distant cousin to chief deputy of the jail, Terry Guillory. On July 13th, 2009, Nicole is filmed by private investigator Kirk Menard at the party house on South Andrew Street in South Jennings, where all of the victims were known to frequent. Nicole was at the center of the Jennings murders. She was at the center of the jail sex scene, knee-deep in the crack cocaine racket, and had direct ties to several of the heavy hitters of the South Jennings area, including Frankie Richard. During the summer of 2009, she told her mother not to worry about baking her a birthday cake because she'd probably be dead before then. Her mom stated, quote, I had bought some icing and a cake for her birthday. She said, Mama, it doesn't matter. I'm not going to be here. I asked her, Baby, just tell me what kind of icing you want on it. And she said, Get whatever you want. I'm not going to be here. End quote. Nicole had four children placed with relatives. And she always lived in fear, according to her mama. She was always paranoid, and it got to the point where she did not want to go anywhere by herself. Her mama thinks that she could feel that they were closing in on her, 
and stated she knew, she knew, she knew, and that's why they killed her. Barbara, her mother, asked Nicole to tell her family whatever she knew about the unsolved homicides. Quote, Nicole, just tell us a name, something, write a letter, leave it somewhere. Let us know. We can help you. And she would turn around and say, no, mama, it's too far gone. It's too big. I'd rather y'all not know nothing. That way, nothing can happen to y'all. And she left it just like that. You couldn't get anything else out of her, her mother would say. Now, Nicole is last seen between 7 and 7.30 a.m. on August 16th, climbing into a white van with Jeff Daniels, the father of Jeff Davis 8, victim number two, Ernestine Daniels. Now, Daniels later told investigators that he did pick up Nicole that morning and drove around town with her for about 20 minutes, then dropped her off at Ray's Laundry and Cleaners, but he had not seen her again after that. That afternoon, maintenance workers from the nearby Acadia Parish off I-10, just outside the limits of the town of Egan, on the slope of an overpass, they find Nicole lying dead in the grass. Nicole was the first victim found outside of Jefferson Davis Parish, and unlike the victims before her, her body was found in an extremely visible place. Just like the other victims, she was found to have cocaine in her system along with tramadol, a painkiller. According to an anonymous witness, Nicole was seen at around 9 p.m. on Sunday, August 16th. Nicole had warned this witness to be careful out on the streets. The witness then states that a regular to the sex scene known only to her as Croc followed Nicole outside. And that was the last time she saw her. The coroner approximated Nicole's date of death as August 17th, 2009. So more than likely, she was murdered hours after leaving the South Andrew Street area. So I've talked about the task force a little bit and some of the victimology. And this is where we'll close this episode The task force was commissioned after victim seven. We black the blue around here, but y'all, what the fuck is going on down in Jefferson Davis Parish? I can tell you that it's corruption, it's incompetence, it's arrogance, it's laziness, and it's a sense that nobody can touch them. And that plagues Jennings and the Jeff Davis Parish law enforcement scene. And next week, we begin with one of the main figures in this whole sordid tale, Mr. Terry Guillory. So that, ladies and gentlemen, is a step back in time to episode two when it was a young Arlo and a young coach. And they knew nothing but wicked IPAs of bearded iris and late nights telling tales of murder but i will uh give you my recommendation for the week like we normally do but since coach is here he won't be giving his of course but my recommendation is before next week y'all look up and see if you can find either that oxygen network documentary on the jennings eight or it was a discovery channel I'm sure if you type in documentary, it'll come up. 
but also look back if you have time. It's a it's really an easy read if you like murder mysteries and and things of that sort. And that's Ethan Brown's book, Murder in the Bayou, Who Killed the Women Known as the Jeff Davis Eight. You can get it on Kindle for $12, or you can get a paperback for $10.49. It's worth it. Uh, like I said, there's an there was an audio book a couple of years ago on YouTube that you could just listen to the whole thing. And it says that if you have a membership trial, you can listen to the audio book on Amazon for free. So y'all give that a, a little bit of look and see what's going on with the Jennings eight. It's going to get murky. It's going to get ugly. There's going to be some finger pointing. There's going to be some more Frankie Richard and some more Guillory's and some more deputy Barry theories out there. But next week we're at it with episode 151, turning the curve for the year four You know that means a good top five, bottom five is coming up as well. But Coach will be back. We'll get into the theories and the police corruption, all that good stuff. But like we always say, deuces.